Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to take your Bibles and turn this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. We keep going with this little mini-series on the topic of hope. Last week, we, we began our series thinking about what is hope and why does it matter for your life as a Christian. And to answer the first part of the question, what is hope? Here's what I think is a a solid biblical definition. Hope is a settled conviction of the future fulfillment of God's promises. Faith faith is the action of of, of the will, like the movement of the will with which you trust God. We, we call it faith when you decide to trust God and you cling on to his promise. Hope is the result of that trust. If you've chosen, I'm going to trust Christ, that's faith. What that produces in you, what should produce in you, is hope that God will fulfill his promises, those things that you are believing. And humans plan around the things that they hope in. We live our lives in a real sense based on hope. And for the Christian, our hope is to be centered on the person and the promises of Jesus himself. And that gives our hope a distinct quality, a life-giving quality. Because the person and promises of Jesus are better than anything else where the world would tell us to place our hope. So as we continue to think about this topic, I want to turn to the book of Ephesians and look really in chapter 1 at one of the most doctrinally dense passages in the New Testament. Beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, it says, In him, that is in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And this is going to kind of set some of the groundwork for where we're going here. In Ephesians 1, Paul reminds us of a theme we just encountered last week in the writings of Peter, that, that in Christ we have an inheritance, something that is ours by virtue of who we are now in Christ. And there's three aspects of this inheritance in verses 11 and 12 that we should notice. First, we receive this inheritance as the result of God's election, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, a lot of Christians beginning way back when, have rejected the doctrine of election. I mean, the first person that I can think of along those lines uh, was the Bishop Pelagius, who was condemned as a heretic in the 4th century, but he did not want to believe in the election of God. We, we by nature, I think, want to cling on to this notion of free will that really doesn't exist in the Bible. And we make choices, and our choices are real, but the sense in which we... We talk about having free will, the ability to choose whatever we want, whenever we want, doesn't exist in Scripture. The the Bible does not picture human beings, this side of the fall, as free. The Bible pictures us as slaves to sin. Ephesians 2, the next chapter here, John chapter 8, both use that language explicitly, that we are slaves. So if we are to be saved, it has to be the sovereign work of God to save us. The God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We do make choices, but our choices are never the bottom. They're never that the root of what's going on. This reality that coming to Christ is dependent upon the eternal election of the Father 
should have two effects upon us. It, it first of all, should level our pride, right? If, if we don't come to Christ bearing our own wisdom, our own might, our own intellectual ability, if that's not what brought us, but rather before you were ever born, before you chose right or wrong, he chose you out of his glorious strength, wisdom, and mercy, then you have no ground for boasting at all. That, that's, ex- that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. The second effect that, that the truth of election should have upon us is that it should give us great confidence in the loving generosity, the kindness of God towards us. He had no need in himself that demanded that he save us. And yet he chose to. And so we should have confidence, and this confidence will feed our hope that he who never changes, there is no shadow or variation due to change in God, James 1 says. And if he chose an eternity past to love you, He's not going to change his mind based on the things that you do or say now. The second aspect of our inheritance in verses 11 and 12 is the point of our series here is hope. This inheritance is received by those who have faith in Christ. Those who hope in Christ is what uh, verse 12 says. Why must we hope in Christ to receive this inheritance? Because part of what we believe by faith is not merely that Christ has acted for us in the past, that that he came and he lived a perfect life, that he died an atoning death, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. We believe all that. But we also believe things that are in the future, that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, that he will bring us to the Father, that he will take us to his Father's house. These are all things that are in the future for us. And so to believe in them is to hope in that future fulfillment of the promise. To, to believe that he is doing this, that he has stored up an inheritance for us. It's only, and, and that inheritance isn't for everybody. It's only for those who hope in him, who, who hope in what he's going to do in the future. To build their lives around that promise. Third aspect of our inheritance in verses 11 and 12 is that, and this seems almost paradoxical, we are in some sense God's inheritance. Notice the end of verse 12. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be, that is, we might exist, to the praise of his glory. So we exist as those who hope in Jesus, as hopers in Jesus, not for our own glory, but for God's glory. We exist for the sake of his glorious name. Now, his, he's perfect and he doesn't need that. He doesn't need creatures giving him praise. He's existed from eternity past before he ever created the world, right? He didn't need that, but he has chosen to create us for this purpose, that we would be a people for his own possession, and we would be trophies not displaying our worth. Sometimes salvation gets presented as, look at how valuable you are. Jesus died for you. Well, we can say, look at how much value he has chosen to place upon you, but it's not your intrinsic worth. That, that makes God save you. It's his love where he chooses to place value upon you and, and bring you into his family. 
So those who hope in Jesus don't simply praise him for what he's done. We exist as trophies of his grace. We put his value, his wisdom, his mercy on display. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 says the angels are longing to look into what he's doing in salvation. It's like they can't imagine why God would save such train wrecks as us. And yet in doing so, we put his mercy on display, his glory on display. We exist to display the love of God in Christ. We are his inheritance. And that last point matters profoundly for our hope because if the whole point of salvation is putting on display the staggering love of God, his power, his wisdom, his might in redeeming rebels and making them children at his table, bringing them into his family, then we can have incredible confidence that the work that he began in us he will bring to completion. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus will not give up on you in between now and then. Jesus won't give up on you when you fail. You don't have to feel insecure in your salvation because he wasn't waiting for you to be perfect before he saved you. He wasn't waiting for you to get your act together. You never will. You are worse than you think. And yet God has chosen to pour out his love on you in Christ. Do you doubt the efficacy, the the stick to you-ness of God's love? Then look at what he has done. For everyone who has trusted in Jesus, God has given the Holy Spirit as the down payment and the seal of salvation. Verses 13 and 14 here in Ephesians 1 says, In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is at work in you if you are trusting in Jesus. And if that's true of you, if you trust Jesus, then you should have no doubts about his continued trust and love and steadfastness towards you. Uh, I read a story about Charles Spurgeon this week, and and there was a woman in his church who, who, she knew she loved Jesus, but she just wasn't sure if he loved her. And, And he said to her, you don't have to worry, because if you love Jesus, he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put that love in you. Your ability to love him is the result of his first loving you. We love God because he first loved us. Those who are in the Father's hand, those who are trusting in Jesus, are safe. Back in John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And what he says next is this, verse 28 of John 10. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You, if you are in Christ's hand, can't get away. You can't jump out. Nobody can pull you out. You won't fall out on accident. God will hold you fast. And it's with this foundation that Paul turns in Ephesians 1, verses 15 and following. He he praises the church for the faith and love which he's heard that they demonstrate. He hasn't been to Ephesus personally at this point, it seems. Faith, actually, I'm trying to think timeline-wise. 
he's, he's writing this back to them after he planted the church in Ephesus, and now he's writing this letter back to them. He, he's praising them for the faith and love which they're demonstrating. Faith in Jesus working out through love for the saints is one of the chief marks of true Christianity. True faith in Christ always works itself out in love for his people. But he wants even more for them. He wants them to know Christ in a deeper way. So verse 16, we see him shift into prayer. Paul tells the church how he's praying for them. And as I as I was prepping this sermon this week, especially the last two days, as I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and even now as I'm preaching it, this is my prayer for each of you. This is my prayer for us, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what are the key components of this prayer? I mean, if you try start trying to like pull that thing apart just clause by clause, you could get lost. You feel like you're in a forest. Paul's notorious for these long sentences <laughs> with all these subclauses. But I think the point of this prayer basically comes down to this. Paul wants this church to become better acquainted with God. He wants them to know God in a deeper way. And that that might at first sound like a basic or obvious value. But I would suggest that in our day, we spend precious little time even thinking about the idea of knowing God, like personally knowing him, let alone pursuing that goal or praying, Father, would you help me to know you more? Or would you help this person who I care about to know you more? One one late Christian writer commented, he was an expert on the Puritans. He said that to the Puritans, the great thing was to know God. But for modern Christians, the great thing is ourselves, what we're up to, what we're feeling, what we have done. So when Christians get together, it's often a discussion of what we have done, maybe maybe what we've done for the Lord, but what we have done. For pastors, this often means like you get together and you're talking about what ministries are you doing? What programs are you running? What's the attendance of your church or how you are doing on the inside? But the Puritan focus, and I would say the, the focus of the New Testament, is on knowing God and making him known. Experiencing and enjoying God himself, and out of the overflow of that joyful relationship, wanting to introduce others to him. All of that is to say, in the mind of Paul here in Ephesians, and because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think we can say in the mind of God himself, we will not come to be hopeful by looking inward. We come to hope by looking outside of ourselves and gazing at Christ. So as we look at this prayer, I want to do so under four headings. Number one, hope with your eyes open. 
to hope because God's power is bent for your good. Three, hope because Jesus reigns. And four, hope because God gave Jesus to and for us. First, hope with your eyes open, verses 16 to 18. Uh, actually, we're going to start reading in verse 17 where Paul prays that the Lord, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. How does Paul speak about hope in these verses? He speaks of it as something which we come to know once we are given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now that's, again, that's like a long, dense sentence. And the ESV's translation, I think, is a little obscure. The NIV has a slight paraphrase that I think is helpful. Verse 17 in the NIV says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Which is to say that God gives us the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The Holy Spirit's not coming and revealing to us new things, things that we didn't know before or couldn't have known. Like These things are already revealed. They're revealed to us in the Gospels. They're revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. But what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's not giving us new information He's giving us the ability to understand what has already been revealed. He's, he's removing the scales from our eyes. He, he opens up our eyes to behold the glories of Christ. Jesus says in John 15, 26, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify to Jesus. That, again, that's, like, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in this world is any place that Jesus is being made much of, that Jesus is being worshipped rightly in spirit and in truth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't look for signs like tongues or, or miraculous things. Not that those things can't happen, but those are not the evidences of the Spirit that Jesus talks about. Jesus says that the Spirit testifies to him. So where Jesus is lifted up, where Jesus is made clearly known, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And as our eyes are open to who Jesus is, namely the perfect revelation of God the Father, we come to know and love God the Father through Jesus. And then hope ceases to be an abstract concept. Our hope takes a certain shape, a particular doctrinal content, that the risen Christ rules over all and that he's preparing a place for those who repent of their sins and trust in him that he will return one day and call his own to himself and judge all unrighteousness. This is what the Apostle Paul in Titus 2.13 calls our blessed hope. So are your eyes open to that hope? Do you look forward with joyful expectancy to seeing Jesus face to face? 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, that he, he tells us that that focusing on Christ is not just a way to have hope in the midst of a dark world. It's also how our lives conform to Jesus. We become more pure and more righteous as we focus on Christ. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, as he is pure. 
So when the Spirit comes, he opens our eyes to these glorious riches. And my prayer for you is that he would open your eyes to the treasure trove of hope that is found in knowing God and knowing that he personally has prepared these riches for you. Verse 19 and following, we begin to see that that God's power is bent for your good. Paul goes on to describe the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And while he says that such power is immeasurable, he nonetheless gives us a measuring stick, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Have you ever thought about the fact that the same power, the same personal power, the Holy Spirit, that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead is the power at work in your life if you are a believer in Christ? So what are the things that worry you? The things that breed discontent or unease in your soul? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit, God himself, has power to address those issues? One of the common patterns in the Psalms is for the author to recount the previous working of God as a way to pull their minds back to to God's work in the past. The Exodus story especially is particularly important. And, And the people tell over and over again how God has worked for them, how he worked a mighty deliverance for his people. So we read Psalm 81, and in the section that we read last week, Psalm 81 and verse 10, God says, I am the Lord God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So God reminds his people of his past work. At other times, the people remind themselves of what God has done in the past. Psalm 78 and verse 4 says, We will not hide them from our children, but tell of the coming to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So why did the people of Israel see a need to recount to the coming generations the works of the Lord in the past? Why did God remind them of these events over and over again? Was it simply to relive the glory days, the good old days? Well, if we could just get back to that, if we could get back to Egypt so that God could pull us out again. No. It's to remind the people of who God was, and because he's always the same, who God is and who God is going to be in the future of his immeasurable power, to use Paul's phrase. He is the God who stopped the mouths of lions for Daniel. He's the God who split the Red Sea and then the Jordan for the children of Israel, who delivered the nation from the hands of oppressors in the time of the judges and then over and over again through their history. For us now in Jesus, we find God's power on even greater display. God the Son took on flesh which was really uh, an act which we still don't even have. We have theological language for it, but we don't have any way to understand it. How did the eternal God take on a true human body and nature? Well, we come up with language for incarnation, hypostatic union, but we don't have ways to actually wrap our head around that happening. But then he lived a perfect human life in our place. And he goes to the cross and he bears all of God's wrath against our sin. And he, he drinks it to the last drop. And we know that because then God raises him from the dead. And verse 20 says that not only that, but first chapter of Acts, we see he's, he's taken up and then he's seated with God at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And we are the people 
who have this God for our God. This is who we serve. So the function of these stories, then following on from seeing the power of God and the might of God, is to teach in in the Old Testament, the, the psalmists are teaching the children of Israel who they are. They are the people of this God, the the sheep of his pasture, children of the Exodus. People who've been brought out of the house of bondage and into the land of promise. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you've been brought into his people. and You are children of a greater Exodus. The Exodus from the bondage of sin and death, resurrected into the promised land of new life in the spirit. Now, there's a sense in which this earthly life for the Christian is kind of like the 40 years in the wilderness, right? We, we know the promised land is coming, but even if we aren't quite there yet. But the heavy lifting is already done. Jesus went through the Red Sea for us. He didn't just split the Red Sea. He was drowned in the Red Sea of God's wrath and death. And yet he came through the other side in our place. We know arriving in the promised land at the Father's side, seeing Jesus face to face. We know that's certain because Christ has crossed the Red Sea for us. The battle has been won. Are you discouraged? Do you struggle to defeat the sin in your life? Are you frustrated by the brokenness around you, the sin of others that's affecting you? Lift up your eyes and see the King seated on his throne. We hope Thirdly, because Jesus reigns. This throne from which Jesus reigns isn't simply figurative as if to say, you know, Jesus is really powerful. He's seated in the heavenly places. He's got lots of power. What kind of power does he have? Paul says he is, God has seated the Son above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Just to say, there is no power, earthly or otherwise, that is above Jesus. World leaders throughout time have often thought of themselves as being gods, mighty above other men to the point of having divine status. But if if men want to set themselves up this way, Scripture shows us just how impressed or worried God is by it. Nebuchadnezzar is brought down to eating grass like an ox. Herod, the great orator with the voice of a god, is eaten by worms. The the entire Roman Empire, built on the claim, Caesar is Lord, crumbles before the face of the claim, Jesus is Lord. We think of Jesus is Lord as a political, or rather as a religious statement in our day. But it would have been heard in the first century as as a rival political statement. Jesus is the Lord. He is the ruler over this empire and over this nation and over the whole world. There is none who compares with Jesus. While the empire of the Caesars is something we read about in the history books now, the empire of King Jesus continues 2,000 years on to grow day by day. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, Isaiah says. And his power is not limited to those powers that we can see. He's not just above earthly powers. Just a couple weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 5, how Jesus had the power not just to drive out a demon, but
but an entire legion of demons had to respond to the authoritative voice of God speaking in Jesus. The power of Jesus is far above all rule and all authority. Verse 22 says, all things are under his feet. Demons are under Jesus' feet. Satan is under Jesus' feet. Are you afraid of the chaos in this world? Dear Christian, remember, Jesus reigns. Finally, hope because God gave Jesus to and for us. So so what's more than just the fact that Jesus reigns is the fact that he reigns for us. Verses 22 and 23 say, And he that is God put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As the church, God has given Christ Jesus to us. I debated whether to say this or not, but <clears throat> we, we went to a mass yesterday. And one of the things that, that a priest says in the mass is that we're offering this sacrifice back up to you. That, that, that we're offering Christ's body and blood to God. And that's the exact opposite of how scripture presents it. Christ is offered by God for us. God is the one who made the sacrifice so that we could be right with God. We don't make a sacrifice. We certainly don't sacrifice Christ. That's God's work. And he's done it already. It's final. It's finished. He has given Christ as head over the body that we are, that we form. Ultimately, this church, Remsen Bible Fellowships, not led by me. This is Jesus's church. I don't plan on leaving Remsen, but someday I could. And whether I do or not, someday I will die. But the church doesn't depend on me because the church is headed up by Jesus himself. And that's true not just of local churches, it's true of the universal church. There is no mere man who can claim to be the right of a local church, head of a local church or the church universally. Only Jesus is the head of his body. And this is incredibly important for us to grasp, the centrality of Jesus himself and the fact that he is the source of life from which all other life flows. Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and have our being. If you don't have a solid foundation in that, you won't understand what's next. Because what comes next is absolutely staggering. The church is described as the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's how Paul describes the church. Jesus, as the eternal son of the father, very God of very God, has no lack. There's nothing lacking in him. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't need us. And yet what Paul seems to be saying that as the Savior, as the God-man, Jesus' body is incomplete until the church is added in. Christ is the head, but we are his body. We are bringing the fullness. The church whom Christ purchased with his own blood, the bride whom Ephesians 5 says he now washes with water in the word, is united to Christ. As in marriage, the two have become one flesh. Christ and his bride are one. The church is joined to Jesus in a way that the two can never be truly separated. And that's why it's foolish to say that you love Jesus but not the church. That's something you hear people say kind of flippantly. 
oh, I love Jesus. It's just Christians I have a problem with. And we kind of chuckle at that. But according to John 13, 1 John 5, if you don't love the church, if you don't love the brothers and sisters, you don't love Jesus. Jesus has made himself inseparable from his body. So I, I want to conclude on a practical note. That's part of why I think formal church membership is such an important and healthy practice. When we talk about formalizing uh, membership or officially becoming a member, it's not like joining a club or trying to say, oh, we don't want other people in. It's just a formal recognition of the covenant that Christ has already made with us by his blood. But, but we participate in that not as mere individuals. Jesus isn't married to individuals. People talk like that sometimes. You'll read like popular Christian literature and they'll talk about like Christ is my husband. No, Christ is the husband of the church corporately. And so we experience that. We're knit to him as we're knit to one another. Faith is an individual thing. We each have to choose to trust Jesus. But when we do that, we're brought into his body, into his family, all of this corporate language. So part of how we follow him is by joining with one another in covenant love for one another, even as he has loved us. So so church membership practically is just like a formal way of acknowledging that, formally committing to one another and challenging one another to encourage one another to pursue the Lord together. It helps us to obey what Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6 says. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 3, says, We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. He alone is our hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have been so kind to us in Christ. You've been kind to us in creation. You you made us. The gift of life is a a gift beyond comprehension. You've made us in your image. You've made us with the capacity to know and understand things and to see the beauty that you've made and how it reflects your power and divine nature. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, by your Holy Spirit, you've opened up our eyes to behold how gracious you have been to us in saving us from our sin, from ourselves, from ultimately even the the evil around us. You, You will make all things new. You will cleanse the world from the effects of the curse. And while we long for that day, Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. We ask that in the meantime, you would help us to be a faithful reflection of you. Help us to set our hope on you and what you are going to do. And help us to hope even in the midst of our hard lives. Not one of us has a truly easy life when we think about it. Sometimes easier than others. But, but Father, there are hard things that encounter each of us living in a fallen world. And we 